Well, Stuart, it's great to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure. So back in 2016, you were business development director at Equinity, and then you got the call and, and joined uh, Holloway Friendly as chief executive officer. Yep. And since that time, I know you've led a multi-award winning transformation program yep. to really, I guess, reinvent that business in, in many areas. So I'm really interested in jumping in as to what that shift's been like for you from being that business development leader to this full-fledged CEO uh, and what the mission is that lies behind that. So why don't we just jump in? First of all, perhaps in a nutshell, you know, what is Holloway Friendly and what was it that got you to jump into this new role? Uh, okay, Richard, yeah, I'll see if I can answer both of those points. Um, Holloway Friendly is a friendly society, a specialist type of insurance company, uh, and we provide income protection insurance, so disability cover. Somebody's off sick uh, mm-hmm. due to accident or injury and their income reduces, we step in and fund that shortfall. Um, the IP income protection market has been around for uh, 150 years. Um, in fact, the founder of Holloway was one of the people that started income protection going back to 1875. Um, recently, last two or three decades, most of the market has been driven by um, growth mindset. Lots of organizations looking for uh, market share growth, volume growth, and all those kinds of things. So big insurers uh, have taken big market shares. Hmm. And the, the reason why... Holloway was attractive to me as a small specialist insurer is because I'm a firm believer that small firms can make quite a big difference in in markets if they do things differently. And as you know, my background is almost entirely business development, sales and marketing type roles. Um, But I felt there was a huge gap in the income protection market that very few people were talking about the real purpose of IP, which is providing claims. So looking after customers when they when they're at their most vulnerable when bad things happen to them so moving from uh, you know pure commercial uh, hunter type uh, type roles into something which is a lot more esoteric and uh, and more purpose driven was the real big attractor to me that combined with the fact that it's the first ceo role i've had and therefore uh, i can get my arms around the whole of an organization and build it in the way that i've wanted to including uh, ensuring that I don't do some of the things that I've seen happen in other businesses uh, previously. But the fundamental right. reason was that shift in looking for a, a, an organization which has a mission which is different to the way the rest of the market has operated. Mm. So it was the mission that actually attracted you to that business? It, well, it's creating a mission, I think, and, and recognizing mm. that, as I say before, most of the market is, has been driven by new business growth, policy counts and premium incomes and all that sort of thing. We tend to forget... Yeah that the most important thing that we do in the insurance sector as a whole, uh, income protection just being part of that, is to look after people when bad things happen. So Mm. having a business whose mission still is to be there when our members need us the most, when our customers need us the most, and to look after them properly as if we were claiming ourselves is really what sets us apart. And that's been part of the transformation. It's really interesting because this is a very historic company, right? It's been around for a long time. And so when you joined, did you have a sense that it had lost some of that mission? Because you said, I had to create a mission, create a purpose. So did you feel that it, would, it had gone off the rails somehow? Uh, I, I believe when I, when I joined, it was a business that was uh, well capitalized 
but with no direction. Mm. So uh, former executives and board members had tried a number of things, actually, to try to invigorate and reinvigorate the organization um, and had tried uh, to look for growth in particular markets. Uh, but the the inability to execute those strategies was the thing that was really holding the business back. A lot of it was down to bravery or the lack of bravery, I think. Um, if you're going to be in a specialist market, you need to be able to take on uh, the market opportunities and execute them properly, which I think is one of the reasons why the board wanted a CEO whose background was more business development and less mm. finance at that particular time. So, uh, what, you know, situation. What's an example, if I can interrupt, sorry, what's an example of um, like how lack of bravery can get away in, in the way of execution? You know, what kind of things did you see or, or what did you heard about? Uh, bearing in mind, we're talking about an organization that's, that's minute. It's very small. Yeah. Um, there tends to be tinkering around the edges rather than doing something fundamental. So um, rather than trying to enter brand new markets, which can be quite scary, you tend mm -hmm. to end up just doing something that's in an adjacent market, which is no bad thing as long as you can execute properly. So right. part of the strategy development work before I joined had identified some some particular markets that in theory looked attractive. The difficulty, as, as anybody in, who's got a background in distribution knows, isn't actually about building the products. It's about taking them to market effectively. Yeah. So they had built some products which looked okay, but they were unable to take them to market effectively. And uh, therefore, I had to um, consolidate the existing product range when I first joined to strip it right. back uh, to its fundamentals and then rebuild from there. Yeah. So tell me about that. So you went in, you saw that there'd been these this longing to do more, few half-hearted attempts or like we got things, but we're not going the full way. We're not making those brave commitments. So you started to peel things back. And so what was the nature of that transformation? Like, how, What did you actually do to perhaps get that organization, which perhaps might have been, I don't know, but it might have been a bit jaded, right? It's tried a few things to get growth going again, and it's not succeeded. You know, how, What was your game plan as you went in? Uh, very much top-down initially, which, which was to look at a transformation program that covered all of the fundamentals. So without ignoring the history of the organization and the heritage, because it is important, starting again from first principles, what's the mission, what's the vision, uh, what's the values that we want to operate within and from there into business strategy, um, looking at all elements uh, from uh, operations, functionality, IT, infrastructure, mm. uh, products, distribution channel, governance, the whole lot. So that particular project started uh, very soon after I joined, um, probably about a week or two after I joined. Nice. Uh, there's no point in hanging around um, and took quite a long time to get uh, to get executed. My objective was to get a strategy signed off by the board by the end of the calendar year, so by the end of 2016. And that's what we that's what I achieved again with input from others. And that so, was what kind of time frame uh, five year when... yeah looking for a five year five year plan, five yeah. year strategy. A five year plan. And, but then the time frame for actually creating that vision, you said it was by the end of the year, was that a six month period then? Uh, was yeah, it was about months? five months it took from start five from months. start to finish. Yeah. Um, and it included all the all the things you that you would normally expect in a typical business transformation plan. So target operating yeah. model, uh, product sets, um, you know, markets that you want to operate in, markets that you don't want to operate in, all those kinds of things. So it was a, it was a proper strategic review. And uh, at the beginning of 2017, we had a plan. 
a direction anyway, certainly that the board were comfortable with. We had a financial plan that looked broadly okay, uh, a load of heroic assumptions in there about market share growth and all that sort of thing, but based on experience, not based on on made up numbers. Mm. Um, and we then moved into execution and uh, 2017, we started, I started the, uh, the recruitment of the right team to mm. develop the culture that I wanted in our organization that was focused on the member putting putting our customers absolutely at the at the heart of what we do uh, a lot mm. of companies say they do that but don't really and we really do um so how we look after uh, people who claim is in my view is kind of best in market really um, well this is what i really hear about you is that you you, you move from this kind of hunter uh, business development uh, mindset yep you said it before like several times that you really want to say, well, what happens when people claim? Like, how do we actually fulfill our fundamental promise yep. to customers? And was that something that you kind of went in knowing was going to be a, a key topic? Or like, was that already your industry understanding? Or was it in, as part of this transformation program, going back to first principles, that you identified that this was a, an opportunity? I think it was a combination of all those things, Richard, actually. <laughs> so, um, uh the BD, as you know, is about is about deals. It's about winning deals, winning market share, um, mm. growth, and all that sort of stuff. And you, as as a as a BD director, which I was in a number of organisations, um, it is just focus on the next deal, focus on the next on the next acquisition, the next whatever it is. Um, but as a CEO, I think you have to do something different, and you have to work out where you can compete in a market or in an adjacent mm. market to the one that exists. Um, and again, you'll have you'll have read, I'm sure, you know, blue ocean theory and red ocean theory, and the IP income protection market is not different to any other market. There are four or five firms who take 80% of the market share, pretty much. They all compete on on similar grounds. One of which is right. price. And if we had um, followed that same strategy, then we wouldn't be here today because we can't compete on price with. Mm. multinational PLCs have got you know significantly stronger balance sheets that we have so it wasn't difficult to identify the fact we needed to do something different the the difference I think is about trying to find something that we can do different that they are unable to copy that quickly mm. um, and that's where I ended up focusing on the, the obvious thing which is what happens to somebody when they claim uh, it's the it's the proof point, if you like, for for all insurance yeah. products. We we know that from whether it's motor insurance or travel mm. insurance, life insurance, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. It's what happens when somebody gets into trouble, and whether the insurer can can step in and help them. And it means that you move away from chasing pure growth for growth's sake, mm. but you chase growth because it enables you to provide better services to more people. And it's that kind of theory and that kind of um, belief that ethos if you like that that shines through and we developed here something which is known as the essence of holloway and it, it and it's about what does it feel like to be a member of staff what does it feel like to be an advisor uh, selling our products what does it feel like perhaps most importantly as a customer so understanding customer journey understanding mm -hmm. the the the, uh, the ethos and how it applies to to our members and i say we're a mutual company so mm. we, we aren't owned by shareholders actually owned by our customers and again that, yeah. that uh, that's an important differentiator we don't have shareholders to pay dividends to all of the profits that we make go back into providing services for our members so it's yeah so i love this idea of the essence yeah this idea of looking at the feeling the emotional connection on yeah. the journey yeah, fascinating um tell me about 
that's your own shift in that journey because you came from this school of business development, right? Where you did pursue the deal. Sure. Um, And so was there any kind of conflict in you between like, like, here I am, I know that my signature strength is my ability to drive the deals. That's why I've been probably got to where I got to in business development. And now here I am kind of doing seven months, five months of strategy, uh, you know, focusing into the kind of core, um, you know, slowing down that deal process to really work on other things. Uh, did did you feel discomfort in that process? Uh, no, like, you the, know, perhaps I'm not going to be delivering what I know how to deliver. What, what was going on for you? The, the opposite, actually. I think it's the uh, it's the kind of mindset that I've got, which is doing things which are outside your comfort zone is actually uh, incredibly motivating. And I've never mm-hmm. had an opportunity to get my arms around every aspect of an organization before, before joining Holloway. So... Mm-hmm. Spinning the uh, the business development plate, um, something which just has to happen in every business. So uh, mm-hmm. I outsourced that quite quickly, or, or uh, delegated it rather, by recruiting mm-hmm. an excellent sales and marketing director who knows the market in the same way that I do, um, and and better in some in some areas. Uh, and we developed a distribution strategy together, which he has executed uh, over the course of the last uh, six years or so. So that I felt I wasn't, I didn't need to focus as much on on the BD side, and that then right. led me to focus on the things which I've not got the the same level of experience in. So part of it, part of the excitement is about learning new things. And whilst I'm not an expert on IT and I'm not an expert on operations and Six Sigma, uh, you know, process improvement techniques and that sort of thing, because I'm old and I've been around the market for ages, you kind of know a bit about everything. Um, So I've been able to, uh, again, to recruit people into the team who've got the same ethos, the same belief uh, structures that I've got, who want to build an organization that does the right thing for members at the right time, Mm. that culture. Um, and they have helped me to execute all aspects of our uh, of our of our strategy, and that's uh, that, that's massively motivational because it's you know we're we're stretching into all sorts of different areas. I didn't know how difficult it was to replatform an insurance company. I do now, and I've right. and I've got all of the scars and many more to come. I'm sure. Um, well, I'm not going to ask you to show the scars right now. <laughs> no, on, you, on, you wouldn't want to see them. Don't worry. <laughs> um, tell me, uh, uh, tell me about how this. That this program was received because uh, you said it was quite intentionally quite top down. It was in some ways, um, and you clearly led it. And I think one thing I sometimes hear in my clients, uh, especially those who are stepping up to bigger challenges, is oh my word, at this point in my even bigger remit, do I need to go kind of bottom up and really get everybody on board with all the processes? And there's always a tension, right, between that kind of expediency of getting a small group together to figure it out and then sell it versus getting everybody to collaborate, um, going slower, but having something perhaps with more ownership. So I'm curious as to kind of how you experience that process. Well, I think think situational leadership uh, is is the phrase that I would use. So at different times, all CEOs need to be adaptable uh, to change their leadership style. And in a small business that is largely directionless, uh, that has very good people, very capable people who haven't really seen where the future could be, you have to start with a directional um, uh, strategy. So development strategy directionally. We are going to do this. This is really important because. So the communication of what you're doing and the process you're going through 
is massively important. So I spent a lot of time, very money, I only had 28 people who worked for me at the time, um, spent a lot of time regularly communicating what we were doing, why we were doing it, where we were in the process, because you know it's not going to be mm. done in a week. So explaining, you know, next month we're going to be taking the board through our future um, distribution strategy. Next month after that, we're going to be doing some work on IT strategy and where we see that developing. And as long as the individuals that are involved in those functions see the intention is mm. about creating a better future for the organization and a better future for them individually, hopefully, then uh, I, I believe it creates um, what's, I think what's been phrased, phrased before as followership. So giving people enough of a vision, uh, vastly overused word, as we know, um, but creating an, uh, an optimistic future. What could this organization actually look like? And what could their part be in that organization? And then managing, literally managing the, the conflicts that are going to come through and creating the opportunity for people to say, actually, I don't understand. Can you tell me more? Or hmm. wouldn't it be better if? And to be able to answer those objectives, objections rather. Yeah, tell me about that. Tell me about the resistance. You know, like what, what, where were people a bit concerned, and how did you deal with that really practically? Um, there, there, there's always concern, I think, when a new leader comes in and says, "Right, chaps, what we're going to do is something vastly different to what's been going on for the previous right. thirty or forty years." Um, but I think as long as you're human and you're able to sit down and talk to people one to one or in small groups to get them comfortable to be able to air their views and air their concerns and deal with them treat people like adults be honest you know um, if you if you can't answer a question then tell them you can't answer it you know that sort of thing no no lies there's no point in 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 losing your integrity or your honesty um, most people will will kind of they'll kind of get on board eventually i had mm. i had less resistance from some as you would expect, it was a well. Thank goodness somebody's coming in and telling us that we can that we've got a future that's going to work. Nice. And I had others that were m much more cautious about. Well, I'm not really sh quite sure. And those are the ones you have to spend a bit more time with. And ultimately, they're they're either they're either on board or they're not. And I think mm. if they're on board, um, and as long as they're willing to continue to develop and adapt, then that's fine. The ones who aren't on board and will never get on board have to be moved on. And mm. uh, there was a small element of that in here, but but not not very much, not very much. Most people got it, and in fact, most people who wanted to move on self-selected. They didn't they didn't require me to go in and say, right, you know, unfortunately, you don't fit anymore. They'd actually worked right. out for themselves that the future probably wasn't, wasn't what they wanted, and they decided to go and do something else, and that's fine. And we helped them on that on that journey. So I didn't get a lot of resistance. Um, mm. The more challenging aspect as a CEO, as as you can probably know, is to make sure that you've got the board on side so we only have yeah. uh, two exec directors and uh, and uh, a number of five six at the time in fact seven or eight at the time when i first joined non-exec directors um and it was making sure that they understood that what they had asked me to do was going to be painful <laughs> for the organization because it was going to mm. cost money uh, there were roles that were going to have to change fundamentally and we would have to get quite a big bill for changing some of the technology and as long mm. as they understood that um then that was that was that was more of a challenge actually than dealing with with colleagues here um and that was and that was that wasn't easy that wasn't an easy journey because some of them ultimately ended up having to be moved on so some mm -hmm. of the non-execs had to go and were replaced 
by people who were more experienced in our market and who were technically better and, and those sorts of things. Yeah, so you had to really exert leadership on the board yes. side and say, you asked me to do this. Yeah. This is what this is the cost of what you're asking me to do. Yeah. And I need you to support me with that. Yes. And then rather than kowtowing if they just push back, you had to kind of have a bigger discussion, which yeah. is well <laughs> You started this. <laughs> well, yeah, either yeah, yeah, yeah. either I shouldn't be here or you shouldn't be here potentially yeah, that's, uh, that's at, some, right. at some point. But if, but in fairness in fairness to all of the all of the non execs, they've all been very supportive. Uh, the previous set as well as the current ones. Um and a lot of that again comes down to communication. I think mm. if I'd presented them with a fait accompli and they hadn't been involved in the process and I was asking them to sign off five years worth of capital spend, I wouldn't have got where I've got to. So I didn't. <laughs> what I did was mm. I, I took them through the journey. So when we developed our IT strategy, it was presented as part of a bigger strategy. And I'm not asking you to sign off an open-ended check today. What I'm asking you to do is to support me during this next phase. So at every stage of the process, the non-execs had an opportunity to say no. Um, and we had some challenging discussions about, about things on the way, as you can imagine. But ultimately, the, the, uh, the belief in what we were doing, the demonstrable outcomes, the successes were, were starting to be achieved quite early. And that gives mm. the board confidence that they can release funds or, or allow us to do more. And that was, that was quite interesting. So when I presented the five-year plan, um, I presented it as a five-year plan, but with a two-year get-out clause. So the five-year plan is going to look broadly like this. The numbers won't be quite right. You know, the, the achievements won't be quite right. But directionally, this is what we're going to try and do. There's a load of capital that we're going to need. Um, I'm not asking you to sign off five years with the capital today. What I'm asking you to do is to give me permission to crack on with the first year, build the strategy, get it underway, do the implementation. And at the end of year two, if we haven't hit the basic objectives, then we have a review. Either we carry on, and we we know that it's just you know it's a timing difference, or we say no and we when we change tack fundamentally, and that's mm. uh, and that was and that's what works, and that's what I've tried to do ever since. It's not it's, it's no it's no good, uh, again explaining to or presenting to Ned to the non execs. This is it. This is what we're going to do, and you yes. don't have any opportunity in in challenging or questioning. It is about keeping people on side um, during that development journey and helping us to think through some of the what ifs. And that's where the non-execs yeah. really add significant value is they, they're they not involved in the day-to-day -day, uh, work and the day-to-day -day running of the business, although some some clearly like to do that as non-execs, but they're actually really good. They do respect those boundaries, but they have a very good and very objective way of, of just making sure that we've thought through the things properly. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think it's it's really insightful. One of the things I often see with CEOs and their management teams is they do need to really exert leadership upwards as much as downwards. Yep. Not as you said, not dominating, you can't do that, but to really create that leadership where you set out the vision, you explain you know, the investment of all sorts of things, like short-term results, money, yep. time, People. whatever, yep. that's going to be needed for that <coughs> as well as the benefit. And also actually to secure an agreement yes. around this period where we all will be in the investment phase so that you don't end up with that period where suddenly something happens and two months later there's a knee-jerk reaction by the board and you're being thrown off course mm. which i think as i heard you said like you actually try to establish some uh, some commitment in the in the time frame yes so that they would be with you for the journey and obviously they were they were supported you because they were part of those 
those agreements in the first place. But the interesting thing, I think, to answer your very first one of your earlier questions about the transition from BD to uh, to non-BD to CEO, is the principles mm. about business development still apply? So if I'm negotiating with my board and trying to put something forward, I will do it in a consultative selling mode in the same way that I would do as if I was winning a contract with a supermarket to sell insurance. It's the same sort of principle, which is what are the, you know, you start from, you start from the, from the first principles of what's the problem we're trying to fix and uh, how can our solution enable that to happen and therefore what the costs and how do you implement and and all those sorts of things. So there are some overarching principles that apply both as in, in a business development role as, as they do in terms of a a strategic transformation role. I I suspect uh, that at some point, the, the style of leadership that this organization needs will be different to the to what I can bring to it. So we right. won't you won't need somebody who is, you know, driving, a, you know, a, a driver kind of personality who's really pushing the organization forward. You might need uh, somebody where you can manage for cash flow or you can manage for profit. Mm. Uh, and, and that's what happens. <laughs> and, that, and that's OK. Yeah. You know, all CEOs have got a natural life cycle. I just don't know what mine is here yet. <laughs> But, so uh, that's a great uh, moment just to reflect. So over the last five, about seven years, I think you said now, yeah. um, what's been the biggest shift that you can see in the organization? Uh, goodness, there are, there are so many. Um, on the, on the, uh, at one level, I think the biggest shift is around having individuals at all levels aligned and supportive of what we are trying to do. So they get the plan, they get it, they understand it, they understand why we are different and how we can continue to be different, <coughs> excuse me, in our market. Um, so I, I would start with with the people first. Uh, if you then kind of take a step back from that and you go, well, if all the people are aligned, what else has shifted fundamentally? The, the products have changed, but more importantly, the technology that we have had to um, install and build ourselves actually with some help uh, enables us to improve some of the hard metrics that all businesses need to uh, need to focus on so cost of capital cost of processing cost of renewals so automation more digitization all those sorts of things that's that's a fundamental shift so when i first joined uh, my operational colleagues uh, here would be looking at green screens uh, using a system that's been evolved over, I don't know, best part of 25, 30 years probably. Uh, and it was incredibly clunky and very inflexible and all that kind of stuff. And now they've got .NET enabled front ends, back ends, mm-hmm. much more automation, uh, easier to change, easier to price, um, easier to, to manage better outcomes for, for our customers, for our members. So there's been, there's been, a, there's been an ethos change, if you like, a, a cultural change, right. which is, I've got a group of people who really get what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it, combined with some different back office infrastructure, different product sets um, that enable us to continue to to drive, uh, say, some of the hard metrics, both speed of processing, um, operational efficiency improvements, automation, all those kinds of things. Hmm. Got it. Yeah, fascinating. And and so so those things have shifted. So that you know people, technology, people, products, technology, yeah. these have all shifted. Um, Let's just look forward for a moment. You know, one of my favorite questions, as you probably know, on this podcast is like, you know, where does this, where do you want um, Holloway Friendly to go in the future? Like, how, where do you see that it could multiply its impact on the industry or on its customers? 
So I think that comes back to whether or not the business can grow organically or whether or not we have to look at corporate uh, strategy, corporate actions. Um, the constraints that small businesses operate on in a regulated environment are driven largely by, by two main factors. The first one is, can you achieve scale? Can you grow quick enough and efficiently enough um, to be able to support your infrastructure costs? And the second one, which is a technical point, is around solvency capital. So insurers obviously have to have reserves to make sure they can pay all the claims. Um, I suspect, genuinely suspect, that we can probably solve one or other of those organically, but not the other one. So I don't know whether it's a whether it's a kind of cash flow liquidity stress or whether it's going to be a solvency stress. But at some point, I think we will have to look for uh, either uh, acquisition, merger, or alternative revenue streams that have a different capital signature to the way that our that our current business runs. So they're quite technical answers, and I apologize for that. But the market opportunity is still big. Consumers still have the same kinds of needs. How they access our markets will change over time. How we underwrite will change over time. The, the, all of the, the hygiene factors, price and process things, will, will continue to evolve. But if you kind of take a step back and you go up a level and you think about, well, actually, the direction of the market, the market mm. will grow. How does a small firm continue to grow? And uh, there are restrictions, there are limits on how quickly we can grow because of the, the lack of scale yeah. and the right. fact that we need to continue to put more money into reserves for claims. Mm. So I think those those will be our our biggest strategic challenges over the next over the next five years, probably. Yeah, and and, and what would your sense of ambition be? Like, what would you love to you know what would you love to achieve uh, in that business, or what would you love the business to see to, to do? Well, in the last grow? in the last five years, we have doubled our customer base and we've doubled our revenue and i would like to think that in the next five years we could do that again so uh, i don't i don't see uh, if we can manage the the capital and the liquidity in a way that we need to the cat the cash then uh, doubling the organization scale uh, should be possible um, obviously if we were able to look at inorganic options then you would then you would multiply that by a factor yeah um, so I think I think the, amb the my ambition is is about building a sustainable business over the longer term, that uh, that continues to challenge the market. I mean we've we've won awards for all sorts of things over the course of the last five or six years, um, and I think we should continue to have that ambition to challenge the market a bit, to pick off things where we can make um, you know good decisions and and earn some profit for our members. Um, and I think those opportunities still exist, whether it's looking at the market in a different way by breaking it down, looking at, you know, subsidiary markets or whether it's about uh, a broadening um, uh, more of a waterfront product range and things like that. There's, there's lots and lots of different options. Yeah, I, I love this. Um, so I love the fact that you've really focused in on this core service that you provide, right, rather than being deal led. <laughs> so I think there's a lot there that you have to give yes. to, the, to the market, as you've made very clear. Uh, let me ask you, you know, on a personal level, as chief executive, What's it going to take for you to multiply your impact within the business um, looking forward? You know, what's the, say, what, what's the stretch for you uh, as you kind of consider the, the, couple of, the next couple of years? Uh, and I, I'm sure the answer that I'll give you will be the same as you hear from a lot of CEOs, which is about creating the, the bandwidth, okay. creating the time to focus, to be able to focus my, my time and my exec colleagues' time on those longer-term issues. Mm -hmm. um, and opportunities. So I think I think those are the, those are the, the, that's the real big challenge. 
when you're when you've moved from a large organization to a small organization which most of us have on the on the exec here um there's a recognition eventually that happens quite quickly that, that the team resources aren't there to be able to do the work that you think needs to be done. So yeah. you either decide not to do the work or you do it yourself. So um, we we have an executive team that is very hands-on in terms of managing, leading, changing things that happen in the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think our biggest opportunity is to create the bandwidth for that group of people, there's only four of us, to step mm-hmm. back for some weeks or months and actually start thinking about and doing some work on developing the next five-year plan and picking up these challenges, picking up the liquidity challenge, um, cash flows, and picking up the solvency Mm -hmm. challenge and working out what we could do. Um, And the the constraints, I think, are are probably twofold, Richard, really. One is around um, us having the the willingness to make the change and to allow our senior leaders to get on with running the business on a day-to-day basis. We have a very good uh, senior leadership team. Um, uh, But I think that we probably are too involved on a day-to-day basis with some of the activities. So the second part, I think, of that is about ensuring that that leadership team has got the capabilities and we've helped develop them uh, to be able to to take decisions which which we are currently taking. So it's how far down do you delegate those big decisions? So I think it's around it's around those things, creating the time and enabling the the next the next tier down uh, to be able to run the business on a day to day basis. So we have to invest now mm. in ensuring that that, uh, that the senior leaders here can can do the work that we think needs doing. Yeah. So you create that multiplication culture, yes, right? Yes. Um, and and that's that's yeah, that probably is, is a great place to uh, to to end our conversation. So. Um, <clears throat> So Stuart, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I think I've you know, loved this shift that we've talked about from this business development de- deal-driven uh, mindset, which obviously can create results, to this broader CEO mindset of where do we play, where do we have competitive advantage, right? How do we actually create value um, uh, for people? And then I love this this process that you went on, which was, that was the intellectual part of it, very clear. And there's also that emotional strand. In fact, we could have spent even more time on that. But this, you know, this point around what does it feel like to be a part of this company? What does it feel like to even be a customer of this company? And I think that is so way it's such a great internal uh, decision-making filter that I think many companies don't actually use. So I think that's a great, a great insight. And then I think, um, you know, again, we had a great discussion around the board, yep. around you know, leading leading upwards using consultative selling approaches actually to to make sure they get aligned um, and they're supportive of investments that you might need to be might need to make for that breakthrough for that breakthrough future. So it's been a really uh, fascinating conversation. We've covered some other things as well, but perhaps that's enough to kind of wrap up for now. If people are interested in finding out more about you or about the business, where should they best do that? Uh, probably easiest through LinkedIn. Just ping, ping me a note through LinkedIn, uh, a, a private message or something, and I'll come back to them. Perfect. Well, um, Stuart, it's been a great pleasure. Look forward to seeing how uh, the business evolves over the coming years and whether you uh, grow organically or make some bold moves, we'll, we'll have to watch this space to find out. Indeed. Thanks again for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks, Richard. Thank you.